The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, it's good to be together this morning. Uh, We're in Acts chapter 2. When you see the sermon title, Pentecostal Fire, what comes to mind? What is Pastor Brian doing? Or, it's about time, or, I didn't think we were that kind of church. It's Acts 2. Sadly, many of us associate Pentecost with Pentecostalism, which typically emphasizes miraculous gifts of the Spirit much more than Jesus and his gospel. And if this is the case, then there really isn't any fire. And Pentecost is actually misunderstood. Light shows, glitter clouds, ongoing words of prophecy, a cacophony of unintelligible sounds and movements do not spread the fire of Jesus and his saving work and glory. Jesus is at the center. So a spirit-filled person, a spirit-filled church will glorify Jesus. This is what we've done already this morning. This is what we see in Acts. So the point of Acts 2, and what really is a unique, unrepeatable day of Pentecost, is more about the gift of the Spirit to help and empower Christ's church in spreading the good news of Jesus. Uh, Yes, it does come in a very dramatic way in which people heard and saw something amazing. And it is amazing because it's, it's the beginning of a new era. That's how we need to see this uh, within biblical history. It's the beginning of something new. And so it should be dramatic. It should be obvious that God is doing something here. It's a new creation of God. Pentecost in Greek means 50th. It's the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks, which comes 50 days after Passover. It's a celebration where people come to to give thanks for the first fruits of the harvest with an anticipation of a, a greater harvest to come. And it's a marvelous event where the nations are brought into this new era of Christ's church, a celebration of the first fruits of the harvest. That's what we're seeing here in this day of Pentecost with great, great expectation. So before we open God's word, before we read it, let's uh, go to him in prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you for so loving the world that you sent your only son Thank you for this great salvation that is ours by your grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the sake of your glory alone. Jesus, we praise you for this grace given to us, for your gift in sending the Holy Spirit to unite us to you, to seal us with your guarantee of eternal life. By your Spirit, would you speak to us this morning? 
Give us understanding and a love that obeys you and desires to share you and what you've done to save us and give us life. So we thank you for your word. Give us a growing hunger for it as we desire to hear from you this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, Pentecost is an amazing, amazing event. And sadly, we may have avoided this section of Scripture because we're uncomfortable with the idea of signs and wonders and and maybe an emphasis on the gift of tongues. Um, To be honest, over much of my life, I wasn't really attracted to the book of Acts because of this, because I wrongly, wrongly, associated it with Pentecostalism. Um, It could be a little PTSD from when my grandpa took me to that full gospel businessman's meeting. Uh, Some of you, I I mentioned this, is at the Holiday Inn. If you didn't hear it, my memory is probably unreliable because in the cacophony of tongues and people being slain in the spirit, and I was just a young, young boy, I imagine a disco ball. That probably wasn't there. But then again, it was the 70s at the Holiday Inn, so, (laughs) you know. Uh, Anyway, Acts is not endorsing this, nor is it any kind of evidence of this kind of experience or expectation of that kind of experience. Don't be uncomfortable with Acts thinking that it speaks of a, of a second blessing of the Spirit that some of us have and others do not. 
as a side note, an important rule for interpreting the word of God, little hermeneutics lesson here this morning. We should always interpret unclear passages with clear passages of scripture, not the other way around. And what I mean by that is recognize that our Bibles are made up of many genres of literature, right? We have, we have historic narrative, we have poetry, we have prophecy, we have wisdom literature, we have apocalyptic, gospel, epistles. And if we're going to rightly interpret them, we need to first identify the style or genre to understand the purpose of the, the author who's writing. Poetry uses, obviously, metaphors. And so we shouldn't conclude that God has a physical body with wings when we read, under his wings you will find refuge. We know it's poetry. And we know it elsewhere in Scripture, it teaches us God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. Narratives tell the story of what happened, oftentimes not drawing moral conclusions. So when you read a narrative that describes awful sins like polygamy or incest, we want that narrator to interject a statement, and this was wrong. Um, But we don't get this, not only because our Bibles would be a lot bigger, um, but the writer assumes that you know this because God's word already tells you it's wrong. It's not an endorsement of this, as skeptics would criticize. A historic narrative is primarily concerned with giving you facts of what happened. And oftentimes the consequences will give us that moral conclusion that we desire. The point is, some passages are more clear because they are a genre that is intended to teach. So we interpret narratives according to genres like epistles. Epistles that are letters specifically written for the church's instruction. So does that make sense? We don't pit one verse against another, but we seek to see how they fit together, how we can make sense of this, and an important rule is to interpret narratives according to genres that are intended to teach, if there seems to be some conflict. I say all of this because when we, when we have direct teachings about all believers receiving the Holy Spirit, and that we're all baptized into one body, that we're all sealed and empowered, we're all filled by the Holy Spirit, these direct teachings should inform and correct any different conclusion from a narrative like Acts 2 that describes a unique event. So with that said, consider Paul who wrote to believers in Ephesus, reassuring them, Reassuring them that in him, you, you also, when you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The moment any person believes... They are given this same Holy Spirit that we see in Acts 2. The result may be different. 
We're given different gifts. But the teaching is that we, when we heard, when we believed the gospel, when we were saved, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit if you believe, if you have faith in Christ. He never leaves you because this is God's guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it. Yes, but you might say, what about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Some teach that, yes, you have the Spirit and that that guarantees your salvation, but, but there's a second blessing known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is what, what's associated with gifts like speaking in tongues or uttering prophetic words or the gift of miraculous things. But we know this is wrong because Paul teaches we're all baptized by the Spirit. Again, Paul, 1 Corinthians 12 this time, for just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. There's unity. Our identity is Christ. All believers are united with him through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's one body, not a divided group. Not a divided group where some are baptized or united with Christ and others are just getting his okay for entering heaven. But still, what about about this term filled? Filled. What does it mean for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit? This word gives a funny impression for us. It gives us the impression that we're like cars. Starting off with full tanks of gas, but the gas or Holy Spirit gets used up, and so we need continual, ongoing filling. And maybe a, a praise service where people are speaking in tongues is like a Pentecostal gas station that fills us back up. One problem with this is that the Holy Spirit is not an it. He is not simply a power or an energy. He is a person, a person who indwells us, and his purpose is to empower us as witnesses for Christ. I came across a really helpful illustration from uh, Ligonier Ministries, from Barry Cooper in particular. Here's what he wrote. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means to live a life that is more and more in keeping with the character of God. Imagine you want every room in your home painted white. And imagine that you already have a painter standing in the living room ready to paint. The problem is that some of the rooms are locked. The solution is not to invite the painter in a second time or perhaps invite him to somehow be even more present than he currently is, whatever that means. What is needed is for the doors to be unlocked so that the painter can work. Although the Holy Spirit comes to live in us when we first believe, most of us, if I can put it this way, have locked rooms parts of our character that are not immediately changed by his presence. When Paul calls us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then he is calling us to unlock the doors 
and joyfully submit every aspect of our character and life to Him. To be increasingly conformed to the character of Christ who lives in you. So the call to be filled with the Spirit doesn't imply that you somehow don't have enough of Him. You do, if you're a believer. But it does imply that there will be parts of your character where you've not yet fully yielded to his sanctifying work. I found that really helpful. Let's remember that Acts tells what the Holy Spirit did to glorify Jesus in his church through the early preaching of the gospel. And so when we think of Holy Spirit power, we need to keep in mind that it's always about Jesus. Always about Jesus. The Holy Spirit isn't taking over the show at this point in church history. He's not taking over the show, the show and pointing us, pointing us to things like signs and wonders. The goal, His purpose, is always to shine the light on Jesus. To make it clear that salvation is not by the power of man, but salvation belongs to the Lord. If Peter, this is what happens later on in chapter 2, if Peter, when he preaches this marvelous sermon, if he was not filled with the Spirit of God, it wouldn't have resulted in anything. Anything but probably ridicule. But because the Holy Spirit indwelt him, filled him, 3,000 are saved. The emphasis and great miracle of Pentecost is not that some people spoke in tongues, which, is, which in this case is not what most people think of when they think of tongues. It's not some spiritual ecstatic prayer language. But as we read, it's actual, actual languages, languages that needed no interpretation. So what we see here in Acts 2 is it's languages. In this case, Galileans. Galileans who had a reputation of not being very sophisticated, so it's pretty amazing that they're speaking other languages, they're miraculously speaking of the mighty works of God in actual languages, in this, in this gathering of, of peoples from all over, many nations. And people are amazed to hear these Galileans speaking in their native tongue. So the emphasis really isn't a gift of tongues, but a uniting of communication. Think of it this way. It's a reverse Babel. It's a reverse Tower of Babel, where God, you remember Tower of Babel, God confuses their languages. In rebellion, the human spirit was the driving force to, in constructing this Tower of Babel, And now on the day of Pentecost, what we see is the Spirit of God is the driving force to bring about unity in Christ, to build his church. At the tower, God confused their languages. And at Pentecost, it's it's not the mighty works of man, but the mighty works of God that are declared. In a way, we're all heard and all understood in their own language. It's a reverse Tower of Babel going on. So being a spirit-filled believer 
is not about miraculous gifts like tongues, but instead, it's the actual result of Pentecost. That's what we should focus on, the actual result of Pentecost, and empowering to share the gospel. The role of the Spirit is to shine the light on Jesus. And so a Spirit-filled Christian will not shine the light on themselves or spiritual gifts, but these exist to shine the light on the glory of Jesus. Another helpful interpretive rule has to do with repetition and patterns. When we see this, this event... And the description that it gives of wind and fire, we should remember our Old Testaments. We should remember even things that Jesus said. The significance, we should think, what's the significance of wind? What's the significance of fire? There's pattern, there's repetition throughout God's words. There's a lot of wind and fire in Scripture. So what's the connection here at Pentecost? Why wind? Why fire. First, in verse 2, we read about wind. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then in verse 3, we saw what seemed like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. You might think that the point of the passage has to do with tongues, But it really doesn't. Yes, the result involved their miraculously speaking languages that they didn't previously know. But if we really want to understand what the coming of the Holy Spirit meant, the emphasis should be on the way he is presented to these disciples as wind and fire. First, the symbol of wind. Let's think about the wind. If you remember... I mentioned this, um, I think going through the Gospel of John, in both Hebrew and Greek, and actually even in Latin, the word for spirit is the same word for wind or breath. Spirit, wind, breath, it's the same word. So when we read that there's a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, wind also means spirit. In English, we we miss this play on words, but for the Hebrew or Greek or Latin-speaking audience, they would make this connection. Okay, go back to the very beginning of our Bible in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The idea here is not like a, I think we imagine like a dove gliding over the waters. Instead, what it really is, is the Holy Spirit is God's breath. As scripture is said to be God breathed, so here at creation, the breath of God had this idea of creating. The divine breath is a, is a life-giving wind blowing across the waters at the beginning of time. And we see this again in the creation of Adam. Really interesting. The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and he breathed 
into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Apart from the breath of God, man is just dead matter, as dead as dust. And in order for him to have life, God, the source of life, had to breathe some of his life, some divine breath or spirit into him. Turn to John chapter 3, if you have your Bibles open, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about the new birth. And then he uses this idea of wind again. He doesn't just say that a person needs to be regenerated in some, some mystical sort of way in order to have eternal life, but that he needs to be born again. Born again. There's something really interesting about the word again. Again means just like the first time. Just like the first time. And in this case, it also means from above. Jesus is saying that a person needs to be born again from above, just like the first time. Now, remember the confusion of Nicodemus. He replies to Jesus in verse 4, saying, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answers with, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus didn't get it. But we can, if... If we put this together with Genesis, there's a connection with Genesis from above, like the first time where God breathed into Adam so that he became a living being, his spirit, which means breath or wind, is the means. Now in John, Jesus is saying that the the new life that people need, needs to be breathed into them Again, like the time, like with Adam. In the beginning, God breathed into Adam to make him a living physical being. And today what Jesus is talking about will make us alive spiritually. It's the breath of God, the Holy Spirit from above, just like the first time. People can have physical life without new birth, but if, they're, if they are to become spiritually alive, then God must breathe his spirit into us. So in John 3, when Jesus goes on talking about wind, it wasn't just an added illustration. It connects the first time and the first birth brought about by God's breath, wind or spirit. And the new birth that is also from God, from above, is from above by his spirit. Now, make a connection with Acts 2. What this sound of mighty rushing wind coming from heaven means. 
it sounds like the Spirit hovering over the waters at creation. And so we get a sense of another, a new creation, a lasting and eternal one that begins right here at Pentecost. This is the coming of the creative power of God beginning a new era of spiritual life. We see the Spirit presented as wind, and the second symbol that we see is fire. But not just fire, it says divided tongues as of fire. So make the connection again. Tongues are what we use to speak. And when we speak, what do we do? We breathe. We breathe out. So the main point is emphasized again. When the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, enters a person, that person is enabled to give out some of what God has first given. And the result is that we talk about Jesus. These tongues are said to be divided, meaning it's that they're shared. They're distributed to each person in the room. And they have this appearance of fire. Okay, once again, when we think of our Old Testaments, what does fire typically symbolize? Think of Genesis 15. God made a covenant with Abraham, and you have this picture of God passing between the divided animal parts when they're cutting this covenant, and God appears in this dream state or vision as what? As a fire pot and a flaming torch passing between the divided animals, making this covenant. This is how God appears. God speaks with Moses in the form of a burning bush. When God appears on Mount Sinai, the presence of God was symbolized by fire and thunder. And only Moses was invited to climb the mountain and see what God was like. Anyone else would be struck dead. And so we get a sense of God's holiness as well. This is what the author of the book of Hebrews had in mind when he said, For our God is a consuming fire. Fire symbolizes the holy presence of God. What does fire do? Well, one thing is that it it brings light. And today we don't think of fire and light as a source of light because we just flip a switch and we have electricity in the light bulb. Um, comes on. But in the ancient world, light either came from the sun in the day or by fire in the night. When the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost, there was fire, light, or in other words, spiritual illumination. And we see it immediately in Peter's sermon. Understanding the Old Testament, being enlightened, putting the, the pieces together in this in this sermon from his study of the scriptures, and 3,000 are saved. The preaching of the gospel brings light. In a dark and formless world, the creative power of God is seen in his speech, his breath, the work of the Holy Spirit, like a wind that brings life and light. It's amazing that in this, this new era of the church, We are filled with the Spirit. 
and God uses us to bring about new creations. You ever think of that? He uses you to bring about new creations. The very breath, the word of God that illuminates the hearts of people. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 6 is a favorite passage of mine, a text that speaks to this great privilege of ours in the powerfully creative work of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Once again, it's always about Jesus. There is a glorious connection between speech, breath, wind, and fire, illuminating people's hearts concerning Jesus. This is the goal of the Holy Spirit's work or the filling in our lives, that we proclaim the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Fire brings light. And something else that was important to the ancient world is that it also brings warmth. Fire brings warmth. If they camped in a tent at night, there would be a fire nearby to keep them warm. And so the Holy Spirit is said to warm a person's heart. We describe the problems of our world in terms of people being, what? In the dark and cold-hearted. They don't see Jesus. They don't understand him. Their affections are not warm, but cold toward him. Christianity, our, our calling, is to spread the flame. When Jesus said, here's something interesting. When he said, I have come to bring fire on the earth. How do you, when you initially hear that, what do you, we kind of think of judgment. not what he's saying. The context does involve division, division that he brings because following him is going to be such a priority in our lives that when family members don't see the light of Jesus, the loyalties, the affections are not going to be the same and so there's division. That's the context of where he, when he said this. But what did Jesus mean by fire? Think of John the Baptist who said something related to this. He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus will bring, will baptize with fire. This isn't speaking of final judgment. It's not destruction. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of God, distributed among his people, who will spread the flame, a flame that will enlighten some and warm their heart and sadly but necessarily will cause division within families and friendships who are cold and blind concerning Jesus. We are called to spread the flame and this is what Jesus intended in Acts 1 when he said, you will receive Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. This fire that came upon the people at Pentecost spread. It spread from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And think of it also, at Pentecost, what we see is a representatives from the ends of the earth who miraculously heard the gospel in their own language. The fire spread to them, and then they took it with them back to their native lands, continuing to spread to illuminate, to warm hearts with the gospel. When the Holy Spirit comes in power, we won't necessarily have some intense experience. We We don't need a miracle of language because we're surrounded by people who speak the same language as us. And we have the Holy Spirit. We have a message that is life, the very breath of God. And God uses our speech to breathe spiritual life into others, giving them a Holy Spirit fire that brings light and warmth, which they then take and spread to others. One author describes it this way. Incendiary means set ablaze. It refers to Christians themselves. But incendiary also means the act of setting other people ablaze. It refers to those in whom the fire of the Holy Spirit is so intense and so meaningful that they just cannot keep the message of the Spirit to themselves. So they speak of Jesus. And as a result, here and there, little fires spring up. And pretty soon there is a great raging fire of revival that spreads across the world. When you hear talk of revival, what do you think? Um, Thing of the past? Uh, Talk of traveling preachers and tent meetings? charismatic gifts, an unlikely hope for our wicked culture. Keep in mind the guarantee of Jesus. The guarantee of Jesus. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. At Pentecost, what we see is our, our ascended Lord building the church baptizing with the Holy Spirit, with fire that is the presence of God, fire that illuminates us to the truth of God's Word, fire that spreads to others as we use our tongues and share the gospel message, using our breath in speech that brings life. We're not guaranteed a revival in our Lifetime, But every revival involves Christ's church. And as his church, we're called to keep lighting little fires. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep praying for light and life and warmth. The results are his. But let's not ever grow weary of doing good. Would you pray with me, please? Our great and glorious God, fill us, your church, with the Holy Spirit. 
That is, convict us of sin. Cause us to humble ourselves and open the various locked doors in our lives so that we might be conformed to the character of Christ and empowered and emboldened to speak of your mighty works. The mighty work of the cross of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the life you've given us and the life of this second birth. Thank you for the fire in us, your holy presence that brings illumination and warmth, affection, a love for you that results in obedience and being a witness to those around us. Again, Lord, we continue to pray for our country and its growing spiritual darkness and coldness. We pray for change, knowing that ultimately the answer is in the good news of Jesus. Help us to spread the fire of your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.